2: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 259. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, the sofa's engines aren't dandy. I'm having trouble with the computer and it's driving me mad. So I've got to take it back to the Apple Store there. The keyboards aren't working. There's nothing, nothing Bluetoothy's working. So I'm having a hell of a game here. So for this one show, I'm just gonna play a short or play a story. There's no gonna be fact articles or anything like that because I'm like, I say, it's what a nightmare just to get this up and running. So. Hopefully we apologise for that, you know, hopefully normal service will be resumed next week, but for now there's just going to be a short story. But what a short story. It comes from Stephen Cotowich, entitled A Time for Raven. I'll give you a little bio on Stephen Stephen Cotterwitch is a Writers of the Future grand prize winner and a past finalist for the Ora Award. His stories have appeared in Interzone, Orson awesome Scott Cards, Intergalactic Medicine Show, and in numerous anthologies. His work has been translated into Russian, Greek, Spanish, and Finnish. He is currently completing work on his first novel. And if you want to go more information about Stephen, go over to his little website there. I'll put a link on to his site. This story that we're about here, Time for Raven, first appeared in Interzone 236. This was the September October 2011 edition, which was edited by Andy Cox and Andy Hedgecox. Stevens also had out, well, he started writing in 2007 some of the short stories Under the Shield, Borrow Time, and Saturn in G Minor. Like I said, there is a, hopefully, or you never know, a novel coming out. He's busy writing that. And hopefully we'll try and get a few more stories from Stephen as well. This story is narrated by Scott Couchman. As you know, I hope you know, Scott's done a few stories for Starship Sover with his voiceover. I'll put a link on the Scott's site. And Scott was one of the fine recipients of the narrator's workshop as well. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present A Time for Raven by Stephen Kotowicz.
0: Fog had hidden Haida Goway from outsiders since the beginning, from the time of Raven until Captain Cook arrived in the 18th century. It was good of the captain, thought Wilson Gowieskin, to discover his Haida ancestors, who never knew they were lost. With a double-bladed paddle, Wilson pushed his kayak from shore into the fog and the swift current of the Yacone River. Fog wouldn't stop him. He'd dreamt of the river of late. "'of paddling, dreamt of glassy river stones "'sliding from sight beneath dark water, and he with them. "'Not dreams, but visions, Wilson decided. "'The first Haida had washed up on shore in a cockle shell "'and were freed by Raven. "'Now Raven called Wilson back to the waters of his ancestors, "'to the ocean to be finally released. "'So let the waves take his body and smash his kayak. "'Let him become Gajid.' THE ONE CARRIED AWAY, THE WILD SPIRIT FROM ANCIENT SONGS BORN WHEN A KAYAKER WAS LOST AT SEA. LET THE WATER CLEANSE HIS SPIRIT AND BRING HIM PEACE AS HE DISAPPEARED INTO THE DEPTHS. MISTS WRAPPED THE FORESTED BANKS, MOVING UPON THE FACE OF THE WATER. IN THE WEST GREAT BILLOWS OF LOW CLOUD OBSCURED WOODED MOUNTAIN PEAKS, LIKE ROLLING AVALANCHES FROZEN IN MID-SLIDE. The cool slick of moisture against his skin did nothing to soothe the fiery ache in Wilson's shoulders and hands as he paddled. He rested a moment, feeling the strong grip of the current pull the kayak downriver. His hands with their swollen knuckles and the thin, translucent skin of age were so different, he thought, from the strong hands of his days as a timber surveyor, from the hands that had paddled the cone with Madeline. By the end of her illness, she'd no longer remembered him. He'd visited her grave a final time before setting out, apologizing that, after more than fifty years of marriage, he wouldn't be buried by her side. The sense of pine needles, damp loam, and water full of living things hung in the air. Underneath were hints of moldering leaves, fish washed up on shore, the sweet of rotting wood. Indistinct at first, a skeletal form emerged from the haze. Jutting from the forested point of a small island, a denuded spruce tree lay where it had fallen years before. Its top branches stretched out over the flowing water as if the limbs, bare but for a few dead needles, reached for help from the far shore. Wilson felt a twinge of panic seeing the tree again. His eyes darted to the front hull compartment of his kayak, his mind filling with thoughts of his cargo and of Hank Delaney. A sliver of anxiety slipped like a knife between his ribs. He took deep breaths and tried to focus on paddling. He remembered when the prone Sitka, already covered by thick moss in the wet and damp of Haida stood fifty meters tall, "'a golden beacon shining through the forest green. "'Kiyadkias,' they called him, "'the only tree the Haida ever named, "'grandfather of the forest, sacred to the people.' "'To the scientists, the golden spruce, as the Anglos called it, "'was a mutant. chlorotic. they said. "'It lacked the pigments that act like sunblock "'in the needles of a normal tree, "'and should have scorched.' A tree covered in yellow needles meant a tree that was already dead. Yet Keodkios lived and thrived for five hundred years, its needles luminous since before Captain Cook laid eyes on them. Wilson wasn't surprised by the confusion. Keodkios was a gift of the Creator, and neither was so easily understood. What few but the Haida knew was that Keodkios had been human once. Long ago, when the ancestors mistreated each other in the land, the Creator buried their villages under snow. An old man and a boy hid under a spruce plank and were the only ones to survive. When the Creator found them, he told them to flee up the Yakon River without looking back, lest they remember and repeat the mistakes of the others. But the boy disobeyed, and for his defiance, was transformed into the golden spruce. On the near shore, a gray-brown seal, resting after chasing Chinook through snaking forest rivers, roused himself from the base of a sheltering red cedar. The seal bobbed up and down as he called, comical with his underbelly covered in pine straw and dirt. Did the seal bellow at him, Wilson wondered, or at the bear whose slick-furred head poked from the water as it paddled silently by the far shore? Wilson felt unworthy of such a send-off. Haida tradition said the tree would stand until the last generation. When it was cut down, the born-again preacher in town said it was God's sign to the Haida that they lived in the end times, and that the last of them holding to pagan ways needed to get saved and get ready for the rapture. Wilson, though, didn't think the Creator wanted Kiadkias dead any more than did the Haida how could someone understand a life spanning centuries you could look at the exposed stump of the tree where the chainsaw had chewed across and travel time on its rings when the tree was born columbus was sailing from spain there was a ring for the reformation there was another for the english civil war the american revolution and their civil war confederation two world wars Man walking on the moon. There, a ring where Shakespeare was born. There, one where he died. Rings for Mozart, Newton, Lincoln, Lenin, Einstein. That's what the Anglos would see anyway. Wilson saw a ring when Cook visited Haida go away, putting it on a map so others could follow. He saw rings marking the years of smallpox that wiped out all but a few hundred Haida, rings for chief Koya, chief Waya, chief Stutla, Nisingwas, Skidagit, and the rest, all brought to an end by one man working a chainsaw in the dead of a winter's night. There was no getting a kayak into the water from the end of the Golden Spruce Trail, and nowhere on the far shore to land. Swimming would have been the only way across. Wilson could imagine Hank Delaney slipping into the frigid winter yacon, naked as a serpent, dragging his clothes and chainsaw sealed in plastic. The near-freezing water would have killed an ordinary man, but Wilson had seen Hank take similar swims in the yacon at all times of year. If Wilson could believe anyone getting across the 20-meter stretch of the fast-flowing yacon, it was Hank Delaney. And the tree had come down, hadn't it? Up the far bank, Delaney had slithered and, working only by whatever light he'd brought, wasted no time in butchering Kiyadkius. First, the thick buttress ridges that helped stabilize the hulking tree; he sliced them off the same way Wilson had seen men carve thick, meaty fins from sharks and whales. Then to the trunk, four and a half meters in diameter where deep wedge gashes gave him access to the interior. Window-block cuts through the heartwood fatally weakened the tree. His chainsaw roaring for hours, Delaney positioned his cuts and wedges so the tree would fall toward the river when the next strong winds blew. And then he was gone, slipping back into the chill waters, leaving Kyadkyas mortally wounded, teetering uncertainly in the night. How long had he been paddling? Maybe hours, maybe forever. He couldn't see the shoreline. Was he even moving? In a flash, Wilson imagined the whole world disappeared. All that remained was the ten or twelve meters of water all around him and the mist. He closed his eyes and breathed deep, in and out, in and out, feeling cool moisture fill his nostrils, paddling all the while. As he opened his eyes, the mass of an island ghosted from the fog. Stripped bare of trees down to weather-bleached stumps, it was a white, bloated corpse adrift in the water. The eastern face of the island had slipped and given way. Tiny green tufts clung here and there along the five-kilometer-long landslide. University students had probably planted the seedlings a summer or two ago, at the behest of some logging company a few months spent in the woods saving the environment. Wilson turned his kayak away and fog enveloped the island like a funeral shroud, hiding it from view. His guilt slunk back down inside him and hid again, too. During his days as a timber surveyor, Wilson had scouted virgin stands, laying out logging roads for crews that would come and clear-cut huge swaths of forest, Sometimes he wondered how many trees he'd helped cut down, how much of the old growth his ancestors had known. In some abstract way, he'd known the roads he'd laid brought loggers and their machines, that the trees he scouted would end up as timber or pulp and paper, but he'd always moved on to the next scouting project before it happened, a timber scout who'd never seen a clear-cut So there was no more startling an experience in Wilson's life than moving in a single step from the loamy darkness of dense old growth to the barren moonscape of a clear-cut so big you couldn't see the other side. The move from living trees and rich earth to cutting slash and eroding soil was as drastic as the end of a fall from a tall building. Someone once told Wilson you could see some of the big, starfish-shaped clear cuts from space. He didn't know if it was true, but he could believe it. He remembered crying. Wilson was long retired when he met Hank Delaney. Hank was a forest technician, one of the best, as Wilson understood. He specialized in the high-altitude timber, too difficult and too expensive to get in Wilson's day when trees weren't still growing at lower elevations. But when Hank came back from a road-marking trip up near the Alberta border, he was a changed man. There was fervor in his voice, fire in his eyes. That's when Wilson took notice of him. There had been no environmental movement when Wilson worked the timber. No protesters spiking trees as they had in Clayquot Sound in the 90s. He wished later that someone had said something. He wished he'd said something, but no one did, until Hank Delaney. Hank's commitment to protecting the forest amazed Wilson. It was a convert's zeal, and it fired Wilson's soul. Usually, the white man found his religion in the desert places of the world. But Hank found religion up there, amongst the trees. Maybe it found him. For a time, Hank kept his job surveying with the timber companies but his reports soon became difficult for the companies to deal with. He started arguing for huge tracts of prime timber to be set aside and protected. When that didn't work, vitriolic attacks of the companies and their logging methods were included right in the reports. It wasn't long before he was out of a job. Wilson came back to himself as the bottom of the kayak scraped rock. He'd been lost in the rhythm of his paddle stroke, "'Zoned out, staring at the front cargo hold. "'The bottom shouldn't be so shallow. "'Where was he?' "'Though mists shrouded the shore, "'Wilson had entered the mouth of a narrow forest river, "'but one he didn't know about. "'The river flowed east, which meant it emptied into the ocean. "'He decided to follow its course to the Hecate Strait. "'The Anglos had named the strait for the Greek goddess of witchcraft "'and the land of the dead.' The Hecate was known for overfalls and blind roller waves 10 to 20 meters high, and waves that ricocheted back and forth off cliff faces, picking up speed to form a mass of roiling, malevolent ocean. Perhaps it wasn't such a bad name after all, Wilson thought. He would know soon enough. When Hank finally related the vision he'd had, Wilson wasn't surprised in the least. He always suspected something of the sort. Hearing Hank speak of the experience made Wilson finally understand why prophets and mystics seemed to speak in riddles. He could speak of the vision only in impressions, of being in the woods one moment, then being the trees the next, of his profound connection with the natural world on every level of being, of a wholeness in the experience not present in daily life, and there was the call, a sense of mission." It was clear enough to Wilson that call had come from the Creator and that Hank would fulfill a destiny to protect the forests. But not everyone was so accepting of Hank's vision. Doctors diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic. Hank said they were working for the logging companies that were persecuting him and ruining his reputation. He blamed the same companies for the foreclosure threats against his house for the restraining orders. Without a job and refusing to take his meds, it wasn't long before Hank's wife left, taking their two children. He blamed the logging companies for that, too. Years earlier, other doctors said Wilson's friend Bill, a tribal shaman, was mentally ill. It didn't bother Wilson. Maybe you had to be schizo to be a shaman, to tune into the voices of the ancestors, of nature, of the Creator. "'Hank spoke the truth, and Wilson knew it. "'But the fury that Hank vented toward the logging companies "'soon turned on the Haida and other locals. "'He accused them of collaborating with the logging companies "'and used the Golden Spruce as his example. "'The island of the Golden Spruce grew on what was part of a timber company set-aside. Package tours hauled busloads of people to the site every year, Like a forest theme park, on the far side of the ridge behind them, hundreds of square kilometers were stripped bare. None of the tours ever went there. Why was one tree so special, he asked, when countless others were not? Why keep the golden spruce like a pet and let so many other trees die? It was then, Wilson later realized, that Hank had decided to make an example of Kiyadkia's.
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: The morning after he'd butchered the Golden Spruce, before anyone knew what had happened, Hank gave Wilson his chainsaw. He'd moved into the Golden Spruce Inn, of all places— and went about giving away all his possessions. Wilson couldn't forgive himself for not realizing his friend was making preparations, saying goodbyes. Did Delaney know he wasn't long for the world once he'd cut down Kiat Having no need for the chainsaw, Wilson took it anyway, out of friendship. He could always give it back later. The chain was well oiled, the engine greased, the handle sticky with sap when Wilson realized days later where the sap came from, he felt like the chainsaw was covered in blood. Wilson had often wondered why he kept it. It was a macabre trophy. Why not be rid of it? He hadn't mentioned the chainsaw in his farewell letter. Wilson didn't want to think of it as a suicide note. Instead, it lay wrapped in canvas in the front hull compartment of his kayak, traveling with him to his end. Those who had been nearby when Kiyad finally fell said it felt and sounded like a whale being thrown at your feet. Babies had woken crying by the sound of the fall more than two kilometers away. The river narrowed again. Steep, loamy banks loomed on either side, the river almost too shallow for the kayak. Crowded by the riverbanks, Wilson used his paddle to push off one bank and then the other, walking the kayak downstream. He was reminded of squeezing into the courthouse in Massette the morning of Delaney's trial. Inside, every gallery seat was taken and crowds stood at the back of the tiny courtroom. Outside, a dozen news vans packed with satellite feeds and coiffed reporters stood ready to cover the madman eco-terrorist story. Wilson needed to see Delaney again, look him in the eyes. How could someone he treated as a friend, as a son have betrayed him like that. But Delaney never showed. At first, Wilson didn't understand. Delaney wanted his day in court. It was his soapbox to rail against timber companies, the government of British Columbia, against the Haida who had allowed logging on lands they still controlled. Weeks passed, and then months, with no sign of Delaney. But in the spring, a crew doing salmon fishery surveys found wreckage on a beach near the Alaska border. A cook stove, an axe, and, more ominously, a ruined life jacket, tatters of a nylon tent, the shattered hull of a kayak. They had washed up like driftwood during winter storms on the Hecate, storms which, it seemed, had claimed the life of Hank Delaney. Wilson wept that night, but only partly from sorrow. His tears were also angry ones. What had become of Hank's mission? What of the work the Creator had appointed to him? Hank had gotten it so wrong. How could he have thought killing Kiyad Kiyas was the Creator's will? How could he have disobeyed? But more than just a lost friend, it was the hope that Hank had briefly restored to him that Wilson mourned. In Hank's mission, Wilson had seen a chance for his own redemption, too. "'Atonement for helping destroy the forests for all those years. "'But with Hank gone, so was Wilson's chance. "'The river quickened. "'Wilson smelled salt on the air and thought he could hear the pounding surf. "'The Hecate neared. It would all be over soon. "'Madeline was what kept Wilson going after Hank died. "'He often thought it strange how, sitting by her bedside... Coping with her tragedy helped him cope with the tragedy of Delaney, too. And so, when Madeline had finally passed away six weeks earlier, Wilson found his last anchor to the world gone. He'd felt no great surge of grief. He'd mourned Madeline for years before she actually died. Instead, he simply felt tired. So, taking the only chainsaw and his guilt with him, Wilson set out for the ocean. Let the waves make him Gajid and bring him peace at last. The river's pull inescapable now, water rushed toward the Hecate. The kayak pitched forward, shooting down a cascade of rapids, and was spat into the ocean swell. Wilson's bow plunged below the surface as he landed, and the crash of frigid water over him stole his breath away. Gasping as the boat bobbed up, Wilson paddled hard, his blades sometimes pulling through the water, other times finding only air as the water undulated beneath him. He squinted against the driving wind, tasting the harsh saltiness of the sea on his lips. He had to get away from land and to the open ocean. He couldn't risk being pushed back to shore, having the strength and courage for only one attempt. Howling, the wind whipped and swirled around him, "'pushing him one moment, pulling the next. "'How had the fog not blown away? "'As waves crashed over him, "'Wilson cut and pulled through the water, "'his paddle cartwheeling until his arms fell to fire. "'He was in the open currents now, "'out of sight of land, even without the fog. "'So his paddling slowed and stopped, "'and Wilson, panting with exertion, "'waited for the end.' He caught himself reflexively adjusting his weight and balance to avoid tipping, as so many years of kayaking with Madeline had given him skill and instinct. The Hecate was as violent as he'd heard. Wind and waves came from all directions disorienting him. The air smelled of salt and seaweed. He knew the next wave would tip him if he let it. A terrible moment of waiting came, almost of calm, though the waves still swelled. It was the nervous anticipation on a roller coaster before the first great plunge as a rolling wall of water approached wilson felt a sudden queasiness but not from the waves a roar then a great blow from the left and then freezing inky darkness thousands of pinpricks attacked wilson's skin as the icy water enveloped him salt burned his eyes and he sank down 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 Pushed deep by currents. The crashing waves above were distant thunder, replaced by the swish and gurgle of water and bass rumbles from the depths. It was almost peaceful, though swelling around him he felt competing currents ready to erupt to the surface. Lungs burning, the urge to exhale was almost unbearable. Should he breathe out now? He wondered. Panic tightened his chest. How did one decide when to drown? The kayak lurched violently upwards. A current popped Wilson back to the surface like a cork into the howl of wind and wave. His hungry lungs gulped in air. Through salt-stung eyes, Wilson saw another roller coming from his right. He felt more than nausea this time. He tried to turn the kayak into the wave, but managed only one paddle stroke— "'before the roller picked him up and crashed him down under the water. "'As the great cold surrounded Wilson again, no thought of suicide remained. "'He'd seen what fate awaited him in the water, seen what death was like. "'Being thrown to the surface had shaken him of any desire to die. "'He didn't want to become Gajed. "'Perhaps it was instinct, perhaps fear, but survival was his only thought. "'Wilson grabbed at one of the paddle blades.' Extending the paddle into the frigid blackness, he pointed it toward bottom, fathoms below. Holding the shaft tight in his other hand, he leaned hard to the right, pushing the top blade away and pulling the shaft toward him. He felt the kayak begin to roll and pulled with all his remaining strength. He wanted to live. He had to live. The kayak righted itself, pulling Wilson above the surface. He gasped and sputtered as air flooded starved lungs. Cold. So cold. Wilson knew hypothermia wasn't far off. He hadn't planned on coming back and hadn't worn a wetsuit. What was that there, in the fog? Were those trees? The shape was indistinct in the waning light, and the water stung his eyes, but it was something. With exhausted arms and throbbing joints, he struggled against the waves, fighting with each stroke to reach land. It only took minutes. It felt like hours. Wilson fumbled with the spray skirt, his hands numb and unresponsive. Lurching from the kayak, he landed in shallow, icy water, the rough stones of the beach scraping his hands. Teeth chattering, Wilson fought his own shaking to pop the rear cargo hatch. He pulled out the survival kit waterproof matches, a knife, some fishing line, a foil thermal blanket. Wilson struggled to pull the kayak up on shore and staggered from the beach to the tree line. Falling to his knees, he scoured the nearby ground. Dry leaves and branches, scraps of bark and withered grasses, anything to act as tinder. He shielded the matchbox against the wind with his body, shaking violently like a rag doll in the hand of an angry child. Wilson took a dozen tries with uncooperative hands to spark the match and get a flame. When the pile he gathered smoked and crackled, Wilson cast about for fuel. He pulled a chunk of driftwood from where tides had tossed it in the tree line and threw it on the small fire, hoping it was dry enough to catch. He found a thick dead branch, then another. "'Stripping off his sodden clothes, "'Wilson wrapped the foil blanket around himself "'and moved close to the fire. "'He might still die from hypothermia and exposure, he knew, "'and thoughts of his own death filled him "'for the first time in a long time with sadness. "'Wilson opened his eyes as a pale dawn "'broke over the forested island. "'The winds had died and the fire had dwindled "'to glowing orange coals and white ash.' He didn't remember falling asleep. He thought it a miracle that he'd woken up. Setting his clothes to dry by the fire, he nudged the unburned end of one log on the coals and sat shivering as the fire flared again. When his clothes had dried, Wilson dressed and studied his surroundings. A gray sea reflected a slate sky. His kayak was where he'd left it, and he pulled it from the tide line. There was no land on the horizon, and had no idea where he was. There weren't any islands in the Hecate, and he hadn't been in the strait long enough to cross to the mainland. Though still frigid, Wilson thought the danger of hypothermia had passed. Pulling the foil blanket close, he set off into the woods to forage for food. After ten minutes with no luck, Wilson caught a glimpse of red deep in the forest. Hopeful it might be berries, he pushed through the brush and came upon a tattered piece of cloth hung up in a bush. Though the color was faded by the elements, it looked like a piece of red and black checked wool from a coat, much like the one Wilson wore. Nearby was another piece, and another. Pulling at one shred, he hauled up the tattered remains of the coat from beneath leaves and pine straw. What was it doing there? On the beach, he could understand. The Hecate dumped all manner of things on shore, but this was too far inland. Turning to see if any other artifacts were nearby, Wilson's breath caught. He dropped the coat and foil blanket and crashed through the undergrowth at a run. He slowed and cautiously approached the sapling, perhaps half a meter tall. The tree was a sliver of luminous gold amongst the green— Wilson reached out his hand. Did he dare? Yes, he he had to be sure it was real. He ran his fingers through the sharp, waxy needles and fell to his knees. He didn't know how long he cried for, but when the joyful tears stopped, he studied the small tree. It was Kiyad Kiyas in every detail but size, lit with the same inner fire, each needle a brilliant gold. A meter or so from the tree, Wilson saw a shape on the forest floor. Yes, a boot. And there was its twin, disguised by the detritus of the forest floor. And were those a pair of jeans? From the back pocket, he produced a soggy nylon wallet. Tearing at the Velcro, Wilson cried out. Staring back at him through a dew-fogged plastic sleeve was Hank Delaney's driver's license. Just because his kayak and gear were found near the border didn't mean Delaney had been there himself. He could have washed ashore here, just as Wilson had, or perhaps he was compelled to seek out this unknown island. A kayak left by the water would eventually be swept out to sea and dashed to pieces on some distant shore. But its owner had remained here, and always would. Wilson wiped away tears and chided himself for not realizing the truth of Hank's fate sooner. For Wilson recalled again the ancient story of the boy who, for his defiance, was transformed into the Golden Spruce, as Hank Delaney had been for his disobedience. Strange, thought Wilson, to be turned into something so beautiful as punishment, to become what you destroyed— as the preacher in town said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. He'd once heard someone describe a as a person whose spirit was too strong to die. Delaney had been one, and was punished for his transgression. Wilson raced through the bush to the kayak. He tore the hatch cover from the bow cargo hold and pulled out the canvas-wrapped chainsaw before shoving his kayak into the swells. At the far end of the beach, a finger of rock jutted out over the ocean. Climbing to its edge with a great cry, Wilson heaved the bundle into deep water. It was for the tree, the new Kias, that he would care for now, live for now. That meant he could tell no one. The tree belonged to all Haida, and as Wilson watched the kayak float away, he regretted that even his fellow elders couldn't know of its existence but if no one knew of the tree, no one could harm it. Wilson didn't know how many more years the creator would give him, but he would spend them here, on the island of the Gajid. He began to sing an old song, a song of transformation not heard in a long time. The song became a dance around and around the tree, filling the woods with Wilson's cadence. He danced and sang long into the night the first of many such rituals.
2: There you go. Don't forget. copyright is Stephen. Stephen, thank you so much. And Scott, what a star. Thank you. So that is Starship Sofa's, sure, 259. It's a little bit short, a little bit shy of length there. But to get, it's actually more the because for some reason the mouse is working in audio ad, 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 adobe's audition it works in that but it doesn't work on anything else the keyboard doesn't work at all so to, to get it all sorts it's a little bit of a niggle shall we say but i've got to take it tomorrow actually down to this genius bar to see what i've got to love lump, lumber the thing there oh nightmare so Apologies for that, but hopefully, you know, like I say, normal service will be resumed. If you want to talk about coffee, my you know, I'll just drop us an email. As you know, I'm writing the coffee at the moment. Oh, what a lovely little cappuccino I've made myself as well. You know, do drop us a line. over at gmail.com. Don't forget, yes, the Joe Haldeman show is gearing up. It's not long. I've had the bullet points off Joe, what we're going to, what he's gonna talk about in the that show as well. So if you wanna come along with that, that would be fantastic. And, oh, before I forget, can you hear? That is a proof copy of, over there at Tales to Terrify, Larry and Harry. <laughs> Larry and Harry. Oh the doing Tales to Terrify Volume 1 with Scott. Let's put it together. And this is the uh, What? Yes. Very. I uh, Got that first excitement as well because, you know, I've got my name on the credits as well there. <laughs> I've done booger all my well, get me name on. Look as it got me name on. So it's looking good. That that's this is due out on Halloween, 31st of October. So do look out for that. That'll be on the, the website. We'll litter it throughout the websites. But if you want a copy of this as well, this will be the first Tales to Terrify volume one. How cool is that? There you go. There you go. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Ooh.
1: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... Searching Sofa. Evacuation
0: Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for us. Airlock will be opened in 3... 2... 1...
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the district of wonders network dedicated to podcasting, the finest genre fiction.
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus,